Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by voiceover colossus Ken Krause, by our behind-the-scenes tech meister Marshall Brown, and by our artist-activist of the show, filmmaker and environmental activist Misha Hedges. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hoeksprung and Rick and Henny Newman. And to our supportive snappers, Ellen Athens, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Kathy White, Dominie Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. These supporters help keep Snap Sessions snapping. Join the Snap Sessions family. Snap Sessions is proud to announce that our own Doug Nunn has published his new book, Jolly Old Elf, The Art of Santa H. Claus. Jolly Old Elf is part Santa biography and part expose of the North Pole's long-hidden art treasures. Check Snap Sessions' website for further info, or you can purchase Jolly Old Elf at Amazon.com or independent publisher Ingram Spark, and you can order it at your local bookstore, like Mendocino's own Gallery Bookshop and Bookwinkles. Abort the court. Let's put the brakes on the runaway Supreme Court. Historic move. The Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. This, to me, is the most unpopular Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade of any controversial decision that I can truly recall or look up in the polling. The Republican Dystopian Chorus is proud to present... This land is my land. This land is my land, it's also my land, not Merrick Garland's. My wife does treason, I proof my way through school. This land belongs to me and me, based on our morals, we say what's legal. Next we'll then condoms, we'll go medieval. Citations from the 13th century. It's true. This land was made In the spring of 1967, my mother got pregnant for the fourth time. I was almost 15, my sister almost 13, and my brother 5. Mom had a heart murmur and was being treated by a cardiologist who decided to petition the local abortion board to terminate her pregnancy. The board who would make this decision consisted of three male physicians. Although my mom's doctor obviously saw health dangers which justified a therapeutic abortion, mom was turned down. About a month later, mom had a difficult miscarriage, followed by an emergency hysterectomy, and spent a week in the hospital. My mom's circumstance was not unusual then, and a situation that almost all women would understand. That is, a group of men were making decisions for her and her body, no matter what her desires, her doctor's advice, or her health needs. 
A few months later, a bipartisan majority in the California legislature passed a new law, the Therapeutic Abortion Act. Catholic clergy strongly opposed the law, but Catholic lay people were divided, and non-Catholics strongly supported the proposal. Then-Governor Ronald Reagan consulted with his father-in-law, a prominent surgeon who endorsed the law. In June of 1967, Reagan signed this bill into law, which legalized some abortions in California. The law allowed termination of pregnancy before the 20th week in cases of rape or incest to protect the physical or mental health of the mother or in cases of statutory rape involving girls under 15 years of age. If my mother and her doctor had asked for an abortion about four months later, this law would have made that possible. This summer, the United States Supreme Court heard a case called Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. In a 6-3 opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito, the court overturned Roe v. Wade, the constitutional right to an abortion ruling which had been the law of the land since 1973. Years of right-wing, conservative Christian and Republican Party opposition and some stolen Supreme Court nominations had finally been successful in taking over the court's majority. These groups strongly held religious views, often couched in terms espousing women's health and fetal rights, finally had a sympathetic conservative-controlled court, and they were absolutely self-righteously certain of their argument. This is in spite of an overwhelming desire on the part of the American public to maintain Roe, which continually polled at about 68% approval. There are no real strictures on abortion in the Bible, in either the Old or the New Testament. Although there are some notions that humans are created, quote, in the image of God, unquote, and some prophets maintain they were called to their sacred tasks since their times in the womb, Exodus 21 also suggests that a woman's life is more valuable than the fetuses. There are other biblical texts that seem to celebrate the choices that women make for their bodies, even in contexts in which such choices would have been socially shunned. In the fifth chapter of Mark, for example, a woman with a gynecological ailment that has made her bleed continuously is described as taking a great risk. She reaches out to touch Jesus' cloak in hopes that it will heal her, even though the touch of a menstruating woman was believed to cause ritual contamination. However, Jesus commends her choice and praises her faith. Full Frontal Samantha B. spent much of a February 2022 episode asking women religious leaders from three faiths, Catholic, Christian, Jewish, and Muslim, to discuss abortion. Let's listen to Samantha B. and her panel cover this topic. I invited a Catholic, a Muslim, and a Jew to a bar to talk about abortion. Let's start with a really easy question. Whose religion is right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Is God opposed to abortion? There's no ban on abortion in Islam. There's no ban on abortion at any point for any reason by any method. All right, okay. 
In Judaism, mm -hmm. abortion is permitted, and where the pregnant person's life is at stake, it's required because the health and well-being of the pregnant person comes first. Okay. Jamie. <laughs> Little more complicated. <laughs> Bad news. Well, let's bear in mind that what I'm about to say is a teaching created by men who are ostensibly celibate, mm -hmm. who have no inroads or connection to the lives of women because they do not have wives, they do not have daughters. Great start. Yeah. And the Catholic Church teaches that in almost every circumstance, abortion is murder. Is it in the Bible? No. In the Christian scriptures, there is no mention of abortion. Within the Catholic Church, how many people support abortion? The majority of Catholics, 56%, think abortion should be legal in all or most cases. And 68% of Catholics do not believe Roe versus Wade should be struck down. 68%. That's a lot of Catholics. How are your versions of faith so open-minded but then you look at mike pence's version and it's so gripped and dark and it just like fits like a fist in your uterus like <laughs> what i realize more and more is that fragile men project their own fragility onto god and their god is male and does not believe in women's equality religion has been used to justify atrocity and to maintain power for centuries. Now it is being used to hold and maintain and entrench existing power structures. Right. They're loud. And scary. Like, if you look at how they're willing to treat pregnant people, mm -hmm. you can tell that they're a bunch of sadistic... Um, Sorry. Is the word you're looking for? Absolutely. Got it! Biblically ordained or not, abortion has been practiced by human beings since they knew they might want to terminate unwanted pregnancies. Classical Greek and Roman texts mention abortion methods and practices. Abortion as a gynecological procedure was primarily done by midwives or other well-informed women. In his Theotetus, Plato mentions a midwife's ability to induce abortion in the early stages of pregnancy. The ancient Greeks relied upon the herb sylphium as an abortifacient and contraceptive. Sylphium was so central to the Cyrenian economy that most of its coins were embossed with an image of the plant. As the chief export of Cyrene, sylphium was eventually driven to extinction from excessive use. The Greek physician Galen included it in a formula for a potion in De Antidotis while Dioscorides said it could be administered either by mouth or in the form of a vaginal pessary, also containing pepper and myrrh. The Greek playwright Aristophanes noted the abortofacient property of Pennyroyal in 421 BCE. Through a humorous reference in his comedy Peace, Hippocrates the famed Greek physician and father of medicine would advise a prostitute who became pregnant to jump up and down, touching her buttocks with her heels at each leap to induce a miscarriage. Throughout the Middle Ages and beyond, abortifacients were the domain of midwives and other women healers who were often accused of being witches. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. <laughs> In fact, in Samuel Alito's Dobbs' opinion, he quotes Sir Matthew Hale, a 17th century English jurist, who actually didn't only oppose abortion, he also railed against witchcraft, sentencing two women to death as witches. John Oliver educates us further. And look, Alito, 
wasn't just deferring to the Constitution. He repeatedly cited some other notable sources too, like 17th century jurist Sir Matthew Hale, who once described abortion as a great crime. But that is not all that Hale thought. He also argued that a husband cannot be guilty of a rape committed upon his wife, sentenced two women to death for witchcraft, and argued young women were the ruin of families because they, and I quote, learn to be bold and talk loud. And while those beliefs might earn you a Netflix comedy special called Trigger This, they should absolutely disqualify you as a scholarly reference on the matter of reproductive rights. A few generations later in colonial America, Ben Franklin was busy editing a practical English household book called The Instructor for colonial audiences. In The American Instructor, Franklin edited English author George Fisher's Primer, a catch-all manual that included plenty of useful information for the average person. It had the alphabet, basic arithmetic, recipes, and a farriery, which is hoof care for horses. <laughs> In a recent NPR interview with historian Molly Farrell, we learned that Franklin gave specific instructions for at-home abortions. And he inserted it with a Virginia medical handbook from 1734, called Every Man His Own Doctor, The Poor Planter's Physician. And what was in that section of, of the book? So that's what I was most interested in. So um, I don't know if you grew up with these, you'd have a book around that just said like home remedies. Well, you don't need to call your doctor for this. You can take care of it yourself. So I was looking at all the different entries in there. And there was one that was pretty long and pretty obvious. And it was called For the Suppression of the Courses. And I was reading this and it comes right after entries for fever or dropsy. So those are the entries were listed as problems that need to be solved. So fever, here's how to solve it. Gleet or gout, here's how to solve it. Suppression of the courses, here's how to solve it. And the word courses from about the 15th to the 19th century, I looked in the dictionary, it means menses. So it means your period. So that's a missed period. So I thought, okay, how do you solve the problem of a missed period? And it says, this is a common complaint among unmarried women um, that they miss their period. And then it starts to prescribe basically all of the best known herbal abortifacients and contraceptives that were circulating at the time. It's just sort of a greatest hits of what 18th century herbalists would have given a woman who wanted to end a pregnancy early in, early in her pregnancy. And that's what, by the way, this uh, abortifacient recipe would really be for, was really early. How was abortion conceptualized? Was it considered taboo? Clearly for Benjamin Franklin, one of the architects of our nation, and for the people that bought his book, which went through reprintings all the way throughout the 18th century, the American instructor was hugely popular. It was absolutely not taboo. This was not banned. We don't even have any records of people objecting to this. It didn't really bother anybody that a typical instructional manual could include uh, material like this, could include a, a addressed explicitly to a female audience, um, making sure they had all the herbals available to them that their local midwife might have as well, and just putting that right into print. It just wasn't something to be remarked upon. It was just a part of everyday life. These days, people who oppose abortion will talk about the rights of the fetus. Was that part of the public conversation at the time Ben Franklin was adapting this textbook? I really haven't seen much of that at all. I mean, there's certainly concerns about 
women's uh, sexual behavior. There's certainly concerns about morality and immorality and also whether or not that woman would try to conceal what happens. It's really about regulation of women. And that I think we can trace all the way right up to today and really see this attack on abortion rights as completely contiguous with that. It goes under the guise of supposedly protecting embryos and fetuses. But what happens is that it um, really damages and threatens women's health and constrains the lives of, of anyone who could become pregnant. So abortion was fairly well accepted in colonial America and well into the 19th century with women turning to midwives if they did not have access to herbal abortifacients. Abortifacient advertising was part of the general marketplace well into the 19th century. According to Wikipedia, Contemporary estimates of mid-19th century abortion rates in the United States suggest between 20% and 25% of all pregnancies in the U.S. during that era ended in abortion. This era also saw a marked shift in those who were obtaining abortions. Before the start of the 19th century, most abortions were sought by unmarried women who had become pregnant out of wedlock. But out of 54 abortion cases published in the American medical journals between 1839 and 1880, over half were sought by married women. And of the married women, well over 60% already had at least one child. A concerted push began to outlaw abortion, beginning in Connecticut with an 1821 law. By 1860, 20 states had passed anti-abortion laws. This led to the 1873 Comstock Act. Federal legislation, quote, designed for the suppression of trade in and circulation of obscene literature and articles of immoral use, unquote prohibiting women's access to contraceptives and abortions. There had been opposition to untrained abortion providers, that is, midwives, but the great majority of blame was placed on the gathering women's rights movement. These uppity women had to be put in their place. Know your fucking place, trash. By the late 1960s, after the advent of birth control and the sexual freedom movement, those on the right, from religious leaders to reactionary men like a young Samuel Alito, felt threatened. After liberal abortion laws were passed in places like California and New York, a backlash began to spread. And with the Supreme Court's January 1973 Roe v. Wade decision to permit abortion in many cases, suddenly the counterattack began to strengthen. There was the Hyde Amendment in 1980, authored by right-wing Illinois Catholic Congressman Henry Hyde, which made it against the law for federal funds to be used for abortions, and an ongoing assault on Roe v. Wade by various right-wing litigants in multiple courts around the country. It was maintained that they were doing it for the fetuses, of course, but also ostensibly for the health of the mother. John Oliver talks to us about pushing targeted regulation of abortion providers or trap laws. The vagueness of that ruling has allowed states to introduce dozens of what some have called trap laws or targeted regulation of abortion providers, though their supporters, to an eerie degree, all characterize them somewhat differently. This is really about um, uh, the issue of women's health. We're protecting women's health and safety. We are protecting women's health. I just wanted to reiterate that this is really all about protecting the health and safety of women. 
Yeah, but when you're that insistent about women's health, it starts to sound suspicious. It, it, it's like having a folder on your computer called Definitely Not Porn. <laughs> you're not fooling anyone. You're asking more questions than you're answering. Actually, abortions are relatively safe procedures, statistically safer than giving birth. Planned Parenthood's clinics provide safe, in-clinic abortions for women. The type of the procedure done depends on how far along a woman is during pregnancy. The most common type of procedure is the suction abortion, also known as the vacuum aspiration, where a certified doctor will gently use the suction tool to empty the uterus. This method is used until about 14 to 16 weeks after the woman's last period. A type of procedure that is performed 16 weeks or longer from a woman's last period is the dilation and evacuation, which uses vacuum aspiration and other medical tools to empty the uterus. The in-clinic abortions are effective, much safer than using at-home methods, and work more than 99 out of every 100 times. According to recent statistics, legal abortions have a mortality rate of 0.00073%, 10 times less than death by colonoscopy, hardly a deadly procedure. Although, let's admit, it's the prep for a colonoscopy that can be deadly. Gotta go, gotta go, gotta go right now, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go. The CDC reports that from 2003 to 2009, a recent period for which it has figures, the national mortality rate was 0.67 deaths per 100,000 abortions. In 2009, a total of eight women died due to abortion. Tragic as that is, compare it with fatal reactions to penicillin, which result in 500 to 1,000 deaths per year. And what about Viagra? According to the Association of Reproductive Health Professionals, it has a death rate of 5 per 100,000 prescriptions. But you don't find legislators calling for a ban on their precious Viagra. It has always seemed odd to me that Republicans, especially Republican men, are so obsessed with abortion. According to Planned Parenthood, 77% of anti-abortion activists are men. Yet oddly, 100% of them will never get pregnant. That's suspicious. For these folks, the unborn are absolutely sacrosanct, in need of ironclad legislative protection. Yet, once babies are born, they will receive next to no government backing. Crabby Republican legislators will block minimum wage laws. They will close down Planned Parenthood facilities. They will cut sex education in schools. They will roll back maternity coverage. And they will fight tooth and nail to repeal Obamacare without offering a health care plan of their own. And they will prioritize forcing women to carry unwanted child to term over the health of the planet. A planet that is already swarming with 8 billion deadly homo sapiens. Comedy great George Carlin got the situation absolutely right back in this routine from 1996. Boy, these conservatives are really something, aren't they? They're all in favor of the unborn. They will do anything for the unborn. But once you're born, you're on your own. Pro-life conservatives are obsessed with the fetus from conception to nine months. After that, they don't want to know about you. They don't want to hear from you. No, nothing. No neonatal care, no daycare, no Head Start, no school lunch, no food stamps, no welfare, no nothing. If you're pre-born, you're fine. If you're preschool, you're f***. 
They're not pro-life. You know what they are? They're anti-woman. Simple as it gets. Anti-woman. They don't like them. George Carlin was indeed right on target. All the right-wing maneuvering for many years to dominate the U.S. court system has been extremely successful. From Reagan's to the Bush's to Trump's judicial choices, all with the collusion of that sneaky weasel Mitch McConnell. It's odd that the supposedly wonderful Federalist Society seems to have an unending supply of wannabe fascists, all dying to uphold the fabulousness of St. Antonin Scalia's legacy. Except for Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and Katanji Brown-Jackson, the rest of the present Supreme Court are misogynistic scoundrels, and they don't care about the future of women or children. The slogan, Abort the Court, makes total sense. As we confront a future where women and minorities have their rights limited, where climate change legislation and environmental regulation is blocked, and where gun control stands no chance, it's hard to see where there might be a light at the end of the tunnel. Soon after the recent Dobbs decision, late-night comic Jimmy Kimmel handed over his show to comedian Chelsea Handler, who was ready to let her opinions of that decision rip. Let's take this segment out with Chelsea Handler taking aim at the Supreme Court. Welcome to Jimmy Kimmel Live, everybody. I am your guest host, Chelsea Handler. be here all week long, or at least until Republicans make it illegal for women to talk. <laughs> Jimmy is off right now doing whatever the f- he wants with his body. <laughs> Remember like five days ago when Fox News told us the biggest threat facing America was drag queens? That was cute. <laughs> At this point, I probably have more rights if my vagina was an AR-15. <laughs> As some of you may have heard, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade on Friday. There were massive protests all across the country this weekend and here in L.A. too. Droves of Americans took to the streets and even in the face of such adversity, countless women were able to turn their anger into some very creative posters. You didn't like wearing a mask. Imagine being forced to have a baby. (laughs) Pregnancy begins with a penis. Regulate that from Philippians 13, 13. Don't like abortions? Ignore them like you ignore school shootings. I won't carry his load. And get off my lawn. Not only has this decision further divided our country, most families now have two separate group texts going. One with the relatives who support the rights of women and one with the relatives who live in Florida. decision has made me a very strong advocate of the pull-out method, which is when you pull Clarence Thomas out of the Supreme Court. (laughs) Republicans were taking a victory lap and looking ahead to all the terrible things they can do if they take back the House in the midterms. None more so than Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. 
If you were Speaker and House Republicans win the majority, what are some of the abortion bills that you would put on the floor? Well, first and foremost, I believe in saving every life possible. We will continue to look wherever we can go to save as many lives as possible. Just as long as that life doesn't need baby formula, affordable health care, or a place to learn without getting shot. By the way, Kevin McCarthy, since you mention it, let's talk about what it means to be pro-life. Universal health care, that's pro-life. Restricting guns, that's also pro-life. Fighting climate change, that's also pro-life. Listening to doctors during a pandemic, also pro-life. Not forcing women to give birth like livestock, pro-life. But your party opposes all of those things. Calling Republicans pro-life is like calling O.J. Simpson pro-wife. <laughs> They protect their houses, they protect their friends, they protect their wallets, but women is where it ends. They banned all your rights, made you poor so you can't fight. They need more white children, please give them your children. So learn how to birth and fuck your stupid earth. They can burn right there, right with ya. And God for fucking bad that you love this fucking kid, you better earn or we'll take over. And who cares if you're a child? I think motherhood is mild. Maybe you'll learn how to work harder. And sure, you're just 13, but my great-grandma was a queen. She did the same. She did not complain. Don't complain, don't complain. You look a little insane. Don't complain, don't complain. You're fine. Don't complain, don't complain. You know we run the game. Don't complain, don't complain about your rights. They want bigger houses, they want richer friends, they want fatter wallets, and we'll get it to any end. They're rapists and thieves that we look to to lead. Of course they want children to force us with children, so learn how to mother and love one another. If daddy's your brother, oh well. Fucking willing, you find this fulfilling. If you want more from life, then say prayers. Don't complain, don't complain. You look a little insane. Don't complain, don't complain. You're fine. Don't complain, don't complain. You know we run the game. Don't complain, don't complain about your rights. And if I'm forced to give birth on this poor fucking earth, who will be there to make sure he's fine? Cause they can't fucking be me, I can't fucking see me Having to call this kid mine Cause I'll be riddled with debt And I'm selling my sweat just to pay for this hospital time While his teachers in preschool are carrying rifles Just to make sure he's alive Don't complain, don't complain You look a little insane Don't complain, don't complain You're fine Don't complain, don't complain Change the game, change the game, we know you shoot to aim. Change the game, change the game for your rights. Change the game, change the game, you know the claim to fame. Shoot to aim, shoot to aim for your rights.
Hi there, I'm Ken Kraus, and I'm one of the voices of our Feisty Little Snap Sessions podcast. Together with interviewer, writer, and commentator Doug Nunn and techmeister Marshall Brown, we produce the mix of politics, comedy, and interviews that is Snap Sessions. Maintaining the good ship SS Snap Sessions... Isn't free. Expenses include our website hosting, Zoom Pro account, transcription services for interviews, and other things that keep our podcast snapping. If you enjoy our quirky show, we'd like to ask you to become one of our Snap supporters. We've even added some membership levels to make it easier for you to join our Snap family through our Patreon link at patreon.com forward slash snap sessions. To help us produce our monthly antidote to the media madness, you can join our support team as a baby snapper for just one dollar a month for only three dollars a month you can become a snip snapper we also have our existing levels of support through patreon with the mighty mini snapper at five dollars a month the simple snapper at ten dollars a month the beefy big snapper at twenty dollars a month and for thirty five dollars a month you can become an exalted snappers maximus and for those of you wishing to make a one-time gift to our snappy cause we now have a buy me a coffee account at buymeacoffee.com forward slash snap sessions you can contribute as much as you are able to whenever you can all our snap supporters will receive credit on our website thesnapsessions.com for those who contribute at the upper levels there are special rewards such as credit on the podcast early access to the episodes unedited transcripts of the interviews access to special music and more surprises links to all support levels are on our website at thesnapsessions.com and please know that we appreciate any support you can give and we appreciate you listening to our snaptastic offerings we are grateful to you as listeners and hope you will help us keep making snap sessions a part of your auditory input now on with the show it's great to have misha hedges with us i uh, remember misha from going all the way back i think to middle school um when you were growing up in mendocino you're a mendo kid in so many ways and you know i know that you graduated from high school when misha uh 2002 yeah 2002 so you're also a little bit younger than Saxino then. Yep, yep. I think we maybe had one overlap year in high school. Uh, he must have been a senior when I was a sophomore. And I saw that you you talked with him as well. Yeah, we we just put out um, our, in fact, he's this month's um, interviewee. And you'll be down the line probably in November. Cool, yeah. And I think we must have had some sort of overlap at uh, Gloriana Opera Company too. I, I did a few productions with them and was kind of a little bit involved in the theater scene around there. Yeah. Well, also, um, I know we'll talk about Chapman here shortly, but I know you did, that is also an overlap with him too. So you grew up here in Mendocino. You had very musical parents. Um, I know your mom, Mindy Rosenfeld, she's a flute player. And um, your dad, of course, was um, a musician, songwriter, Michael Hedges. Um, was there a lot of music around the house? I guess that's kind of a dumb question, but um, talk about um, your musical upbringing. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Always music around the house and all kinds of different music from Baroque music to fingerstyle guitar to rock and roll and everything in between. And uh, I actually grew grew up going to the Lark in the Morning music camp, which happened up at the, and still happens, up at the Mendocino Woodlands. And uh, so, yeah, music was very much a part of life growing up at home and at camp and at school and everywhere. You Did you play, you played guitar, right? Yeah, I play guitar and uh, in the school band played, you know, some of the woodwinds, um, saxophone and clarinet and jazz guitar in high school and could still play not professionally, but um, for fun and with friends. Yeah, I actually saw one of your recent Facebook postings where you were playing some tunes. So oh, yeah. I thought it was good. I, I yeah, know. thanks. <laughs> yeah, so I know that uh, with um, um, your dad was um, quite popular. Uh, I think it was Wyndham Hill. Um music uh, a friend of mine who's an um also a snap sessions um interviewee evan mills is an environmentalist he said he always played your dad's stuff when he was at cal when he was at berkeley so i know it's fairly influential music that michael hedges brought forth we'll talk later about um the fact that you are going you're working on a bio about him and i like to be able to talk in at, at some length of, around that too so i I know he was hugely influ uh, influential. So you're educated in Mendo schools and um, you've stayed interested in environmental issues. Um, was that part of your education growing up that you were interested in environmental things at, from an early age? Well, I think just growing up in Mendocino and the surroundings that, you know, any kid who who grows up there, you know, it's kind of embedded in us that we have an appreciation for you know, wild places. And, you know, I don't, I think for a lot of people that doesn't really hit home until you leave Mendocino, um, because that is your world unless you're, you know, constantly leaving. And, you know, we, we traveled a fair amount as kids, but we didn't, you know, go too far afield. And so I, I knew, you know, what cities were like, and I knew, you know, that a world existed outside Mendocino for sure. But um, I think that that value was there uh, because you grow up, you know, running through the woods and swimming in the ocean and, you know, playing at the beach and and you don't get that every place. But absolutely, you know, my and I think you mentioned this earlier, we when I was in in high school, I was involved in the sonar program, sonar program, the School of Natural Resources with uh, Bill Lemus and Robert Jam Goshen. And and um, that really just kind of. Um, cauterized my, you know, interest and appreciation for the environment and and understanding for what that meant at a social level, at a political level, at a scientific level, you know, at, a, at an artistic level, all those things kind of come in together. And it's also where I kind of discovered that film could be used as a message, as a storytelling tool to help influence um, hearts and minds. And um, it was through an opportunity to work on a video related to the Big River land acquisition and conservation. Um, Big River, the Big River estuary used to be logged extensively and um, in the late 90s, early 2000s was acquired by Mendocino Land Trust and turned over to the state parks. And Bill Lemus and Robert Jamgoshen were very instrumental in that and invited a lot of the students at the time to participate in projects related to that. And so we we did short film and that film was used in the fundraising efforts. And I still remember them taking us to a fundraising event in Marin County and and watching our little, you know, five minute student film being shown and 
watching wealthy folks whip out their checkbooks and write large donations. And that had a huge impact on me as a 16-year-old kind of understanding our role in that and that we could continue to do that. So certainly school and Mendocino had a big part in um, shaping who, who I was and my approach to things. Oh, that's great. You know, I know uh, Bill, as you, as you know, Bill Lemus recently passed away. And just last weekend, I was at uh, his memorial and um, it was talked about the Mendocino Land Trust and the, um, and the, and getting the money together for Big River was part of the deal. And it's so great to know that you as a student in Sonar were already making films that had to do with influencing, you know, the environmental future of, of our, our little place here. So. Well, and I, I still remember uh, going to the ROP, you know, uh, video program at the time at Mendocino, which I think Marshall kind of runs now. And Bill Lemus and Lucille Lawrence and I were, she was the other student at the time working on this project. And, you know, we'd be in there after school uh, working on this, um, you know, for weeks and writing voiceover for it and putting shots together. And it was really a, a great kind of creative collaboration between students and teachers and community members to show their appreciation for this wild place and ultimately protect it. So that was super powerful to be a part of as a kid. Yeah, that's terrific. Uh, I'm, I am sure Bill is looking down at you with a big smiling face right now. Terrific. You know, he's, um, as an outdoor educator, he was um, put in the California Environmental Hall of Fame uh, some years ago. And um, uh, I mean, it's just exactly what Bill would want to hear. And that is that students of his are making a difference. So congratulations yeah. on that. You uh, then, uh, after you know, learning some video in, in, in high school and putting it to political um, use, you went off to college at Chapman University and you studied film production, like one of our Snap Sessions alumni, Saxino. Talk to us about your education at Chapman and some of the significant learning experiences or major influences from your time down there. Yeah, well, Chapman was great. Um, one because they had a great film program, and and two because they they gave me a a nice scholarship. And you know, I, I was looking at a bunch of different programs, and it it was the one that lined up for me. Um, and I knew Sachs um, had been there, and I certainly looked up to him creatively. And um, and uh, you know, he he experienced some success in LA right away. You know, working on um, on some of the television programming. And so, um, yeah, it was exciting to go down there. Um, it was for sure culture shock to suddenly be launched from uh, Mendocino into uh, deep into Orange County, which was different politically and 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 different, you know, geographically and weather wise and and everything. And it was just a lot more people. You know, Mendocino is a town of a thousand, and I think there were five thousand students at Chapman when I went, which is a small college, but. Um, at the time, it was definitely felt like being thrust into a new world. And, you know, I got a lot out of the program. They did not at the time that I attended, they were really just hitting their stride as a, as a well-known film school. And they didn't have a huge program yet. They didn't have amazing facilities yet. They do now. And they didn't really have a dedicated documentary program. So I ended up taking all the documentary classes that they had 
and all of the kind of broadcast journalism oriented classes that their television department had and kind of crafting my own major um, since that that wasn't uh, really a, a defined track. So instead of doing a, a scripted thesis film, I did a, a an independent project focused around a documentary um, for my for my senior thesis film, which was Sustainable Table, which is a film about food and farming and sustainability. That was kind of taking all of my video production experience and some of those Mendocino values and environmental values instilled in me during the sonar program and kind of bringing them into my own project. And at the time, I had been reading a bunch of books about how our diet influences the planet. And, you know, both both for choosing conventional versus organic versus choosing meat versus plant-based options. And it really was kind of like an awakening for myself. I went vegan. I started interviewing all these people um, involved in that movement and, you know, learning about organic versus conventional. And I had always kind of planned to do a environmental science and filmmaking double major, kind of like the Sonar <laughs> program was kind of part uh, literature, part science. Um, and it just didn't make sense with, you know, time and, and money and going to college, um, to, to do two programs at once. So I kind of backed off the environmental part, at least in terms of my education and focused on the filmmaking, but those values were still intact. So that has really informed much of the work that I've done, um, since then. Yeah, I would say um, Sustainable Table, um, which you brought then to Sonar, and I had taken over for Bill Lemus in 2008 uh, as the environmental literature teacher. Bill retired. Somebody had to replace him. <laughs> so they they reached down a little lower and brought me up. But I had always been interested in environmental issues. And um, uh, so I really wanted I really wanted to make a difference with that. And so the kind of stuff that you brought back, Sustainable Table, and we were able to show that students who had been part of the program were making a difference. Talk to us a little bit about the, the movie Sustainable Table. I saw it then and I've seen it since. It's really quite a good film, especially for a first effort. Uh, you basically go into sort of, of, of farming ideas and stuff. You give us some, some ideas behind it. Yeah, well, well, like I said, I felt like there were all these great books about how our dietary choices and buying habits could have an impact on the environment and the world around us. And I, I had, there weren't really any films at the time that were available about that. There were there were a few, but they were very focused on a particular area. And I, I felt like I, I wanted to bring some light to that using a documentary film. And so we put together a series of interview questions based around some of these themes of organic versus conventional, about, uh, you know, eating meat versus eating a more plant-based diet, and really calling into question the conventional practices when it comes to agriculture and looking at some of the alternatives, some of the solutions that can help shift us more in the right direction when it comes to how our food system impacts the planet. So, you know, we interviewed sustainable agriculture advocates, Fred Kirshenman from the Midwest, who's a, a big advocate for or organic um, and IPM, you know, pest management. We interviewed Howard Lyman, who is a former industrial scale cattle rancher turned vegan activist and, and plant-based um, diet and author. We interviewed a vegan bodybuilder um, to kind of show that, you know, to kind of dispel this myth that you needed meat to, you know, build muscle. That was actually a very telling part of the doc. I remember uh, students were very interested in that. Yeah. And, and you know, it just kind of, um, I, I wanted to call into question the things we take for granted, the kind of norms when you go into the grocery store 
and you buy something, where does it actually come from? And how does that impact the world around us? And if we were to make a different choice, how would that shift things? And it's kind of this idea that, you know, all of our actions count. And certainly there are other things that count like policy and, you know, what we enable and, and what we don't in terms of, you know, farming practices. And, but also um, it does matter what we all do and what we all choose to buy. And so the film was just my first attempt really at interviewing experts and kind of forming an idea and presenting it to the viewer in a way that they could use. In 2006, when I graduated, I submitted it to a handful of film festivals and it got accepted by many. Uh, there weren't many films like that out there at the time. Yeah, And um, so it actually went to... I don't know, a couple dozen film festivals around the country. And I got to go on tour with those. And it was a high, you know, finishing um, film school and getting to go to all these film festivals. Some of them, they paid, you know, my expenses. And as a 22 year old, it was exciting to feel like this film was out there and making a difference. And it was broadcast on PBS in a few regions and picked up by some early streaming companies at the time. It was a great way to to kind of get started and have a little confidence boost that I could make a movie and get it out there in the world. Yeah. And uh, for good reason, it's a good movie. And, you know, here we are uh, 16 years later, and I think so many of the themes are still powerful. And uh, you're kind of ahead of your time when you think about it. I mean, not bad. For a 22-year-old, not <laughs> bad, man. I mean, you know... Well, it's exciting to see all the food films that have come out in the years since, yes. and, you know, all with their own message, you know, some laser focused on the plant based diet thing, you know, cowspiracy, and some very focused on soil and building soil and, and some focused on, you know, mycelium, you know, the Paul Stamets, fantastic fungi, you know, there's so many films that are focused on particular issues that a whole film can be made about. And, you know, that film was kind of a survey film, kind of touching on many of these issues. And, uh, it's been exciting to see how deep people have taken some of these messages um, and, and explore them further and how things have evolved since then. And I think we all understand a lot more about our food system than we did in, in 2002. And I think a lot of that has, has been a result of some of these films that have come out. Yeah, that, that's lovely. Um, I know um, it has been an ongoing feature of um, Trim Tab, and we'll talk about Trim Tab Media here momentarily, but, but you've touched on subjects that, you know, important to environmental pursuits, but also peace on the planet. And one of the ones which I haven't seen is Legacy of Love. I think it's 2007. And you look at a, at a man who's preparing his family for the end of his life. That's an interesting one. Did somebody approach you to do that film? Or could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, so right after college uh, and film school, I kind of jumped into Los Angeles and I moved up from Orange County to to West LA and, you know, rented an apartment with one of my college friends. And we were just trying to make our way in the world and get as many freelance jobs as we could and internships. And so we dove into that. And part of that for me was applying to, you know, various film competitions. And, you know, there are these 48 hour film festivals that exist there and everywhere. And uh, the Elevate Film Festival was happening at the time. And it was this kind of consciousness-focused uh, organization that hosted this film festival every year. And I don't remember which iteration or which, it might have been seventh or eighth Elevate Film Festival. I'm not sure. But anyway, I applied to this and they you know, sent them some of my work and they reached out and they said, hey, we'd love to send you to produce one of these stories. And they had kind of pre-selected 
several documentary stories that they wanted to feature. And then they selected filmmakers that they paired up with these topics and sent them out to go film these. And so, you know, we got a small stipend to, to cover our costs. And, um, you know, I kind of assembled a crew of folks that I knew at the time um, who I was working with in my various freelance jobs in LA. And um, we went to Michigan to film this story about a man who um, was preparing for the end of his life. And we had 48 hours to uh, film an interview with him, film a bunch of footage to help tell this story and then edit it pretty much around the clock for 48 hours we went and did this project um my good friends rob mcfarland and chelsea austin and i went there they're married now um and we're still friends but we uh, stayed in the hotel and stayed up for 48 hours and made this film and um it was uh really great to be kind of thrust outside of my comfort zone as a documentary director and suddenly going from, you know, interviewing people about the environment to interviewing someone with about a very intimate subject and their family members. So it was a good creative stretch for me at the time. And I think I was 23 years old at the time. So it was a great to be kind of pushed in another direction. Yeah, that sounds like quite a project. I, I'm going to have to watch that now, though, as you describe it. Is it findable online? Is it? Yeah, I think it's available at my personal website, um, Michelle.com. I think you can find it there but if not i can find a link for you okay well that's great um you also uh somewhat related at least in the time when you were working on it as seeker of truth you look at musical artist yuval ron and um about bringing um musicians together uh from around the world i had done some work in britain with um the world of music and dance womad it's called yeah and they do the same thing where they bring a band yeah. from Pakistan or a band from Zaire or something to Britain or around, and they have them tour around Europe. I was fascinated by this. And, you know, sometimes I MC for bands or, you know, I meet people that I never would have met. And uh, I found this subject is a wonderful thing. And internationalizing uh, our relations around art is a beautiful thing. How did this project work? So that was similar. You know, I think this was the year after that Elevate Film Festival or, or, or a couple years afterwards. And um, there was this, uh, it was similar. It was, a, it was kind of a film competition. I, this wasn't so much a competition, but uh, the organizers of the World Festival of Sacred music, which is a, a large music festival in Los Angeles, multi spread across multiple venues. They, in their funding, they included funding to have a film made about each artist performing as part of this music festival. And so they reached out to filmmakers across Los Angeles and, and beyond, I think, to pair them up with musical artists and film a concert film and a short documentary about each artist in this festival. And so I got selected as a filmmaker and paired with Yuval Ram, who is a recording artist and composer in Los Angeles and um, had the opportunity to film one of his concerts and film a few rehearsals and interviews with him and his bandmates. It was a, a very short film and concert video. And after the project concluded, we he reached out to me and said, hey, I'd love to um, expand this film that you took um, into a longer film. And so we did some additional filming and worked together to make uh, a longer short film about him and his work. And again, it was great to kind of reconnect with my roots coming from a musical family and also touch on some of these higher themes like, you know, world peace, which is essentially his mission. You know, he comes from a region of the world that's had a lot of conflict and his, his work is really in bringing musicians of different faiths together 
together to make music together and realize their their own commonalities. And so, you know, we tried to communicate that in the film through their interviews, but also just through the music. And it's um, incredible music and that he's able to to produce. Yeah, I've got to see that too. That sounds like really good. Like I said, I'm, every uh, project I've been involved with that has to do with bringing international groups together has been beneficial. So that's wonderful. Now, speaking of bringing groups together and the like, you, your company is called Trim Tab Media. From the website, you know, you talk about being a creative energy that produces documentaries, works with progressive brands and nonprofits to tell their stories and reach their audiences more effectively. How does Trim Tab work? And let's say uh, I wanted you to tell the story or we, Ken and I wanted you to tell the story of Snap Sessions. Give us an idea about how Trim Tab works. Yeah. So um, later in my time in Los Angeles, myself and several other friends and filmmaker friends at the time, we were all working, you know, various commercial jobs and some, you know, kind of Hollywood type productions. Um, and but most of us had gotten into film because we were interested in documentary and we were interested in um, how documentary could help shape minds and hearts and minds and help people see the world in a different way and make more conscious choices about the ways they were living and working when it came to the environment, when it came to social issues. And we weren't really getting the fulfillment from our the work we were doing in, in LA at the time. And so I had kind of a failed attempt at starting a small production company with a bunch of those folks. Everyone had great intentions, but none of us really had the business skill set to do that. And I knew I wanted to make a shift in my work. I was getting a little burnt out working on commercials and kind of in the advertising world down there. And I was getting to work on some great documentary projects. And I had just joined the editors union in, in Hollywood, and I was getting to work on some feature films, which was exciting, but it wasn't paying the bills and it wasn't fulfilling in the ways that I had hoped. I actually quit the jobs that I had at the time and applied to graduate school in back in Northern California. And I moved up in, in 2009 to a business program focused on the environment. It was called the Green MBA. And it was all about giving people, you know, with a vision for the environment or for a social enterprise, the business skills to help make that possible. And so I did this two-year program and came out of it. And I started TrimTab the next day after I graduated. My co-founder and I at the time, uh, who's named Iliani Matisse, we worked together for about a year to start the company. And we went our separate ways, but we're actually still great friends. And, and she collaborates with me and consults with me um, from time to time. But in the 10, or I guess now it's been in the 11 years since starting TrimTab, we have worked with progressive businesses and nonprofits to help them tell their stories with video and with other online media, really to amplify the work that they're doing. So uh, we work with a lot of nonprofits on fundraising videos to help them raise money for their work. A lot of times those are in a documentary style. So we'll tell the story of the organization, we'll tell the story of their clients, we'll show the impact of their work in the world. And they use that at fundraising events, they use that in online campaigns to raise consciousness, raise awareness, and raise funding to do that work. And then with progressive businesses, we help with uh, content creation for social media, for their websites, for online. We produce films for them also to communicate how their products, how their services, how their people are making a difference in the world. And um, so we've gotten to work on some great ad campaigns. We've gotten to work on some great kind of documentary style content that is showing how companies who are doing good in the world are making a difference and hopefully inspiring their customers and other businesses to do the same. So it's been a great way for were us to you know pay the bills and to make a sustainable income and continue to 
do our art, which is documentary filmmaking. And about five years after starting the company, we started producing films ourselves and using some of the profits from our work, from our client work to seed fund some of the documentary ideas that we had. So in 2016, uh, we produced our first film as Trim Tab, which was called Of the Sea. Uh, and it was about seafood and sustainability um, in California. You know, that was, uh, it's great that you come to that because that was my next question. Um, <laughs> uh, first of all, I have to say Trim Tab, combining business and art, so much of the time in my life, uh, we're looking right now, we're doing a documentary about the history of hit and run theater, which Ken and I have been involved in and Marshall to a limited extent. I've been involved for 40 some years now. And I'm, as I look at it over time, we've done a lot of political stuff. We've never been that successful business-wise. And sure, we, we get our art out there and that that's an ongoing thing, but successfully putting together, you know, a business engine behind progressive movements is to me uh, where it's at ultimately, especially in this society, which is, you know, capitalist oriented and the like. So the, right. this sounds like a great program. And the fact that it led to Of the Sea, which is another film you brought to Sonar. I remember you bringing that and us talking about that in class. And um, it talks about, it's, I believe a good portion of it was filmed here on the North Coast. Um, and you talk, I think you talked to five fishermen. Give us a little bit of insight into Of the Sea, which as I recall, is a, a fairly a lengthy documentary. Yeah. Well, I mean, one one more thing I'll say about just finding a way to make to make our art work, right? I think a lot of times with artistic, with creative work in general, as we're learning that, we're not necessarily learning how to make a living doing that. And, you know, you don't always have to make a living doing your creative work. Sometimes it's on the side. For people who do want to do that, it's important to have that skill set and those tools. And for me, as I was leaving Los Angeles, I didn't know much more about business than, you know, sending an invoice. And for me to, to get that, add some tools to my toolbox and um, and understand how to, you know, think about, you know, charging for my services and, you know, how to structure payments so that I could pay my team on time, how to set our prices so that I could attract the right creative teammates to work on a project and complete it and have everybody be happy and healthy at the end. Those weren't things that I learned in school. And so, I think that it's important for people who want to make a living from their creative endeavors, from their art, they have some of those tools or at least have the opportunity to, to learn some of those things. So, you know, for me, business school wasn't about becoming a business person. It was about enabling myself to do the kind of work I wanted to be doing and work with collaborators and, you know, have us all be able to make a living from that. And that was incredibly powerful for me. Yeah, I think in a certain kind of way, it's a little bit about learning how to do defend yourself. You sort of build your muscles up in that way. You you want to have that business muscle. It makes you more powerful as an artist, I think. Absolutely. I think a lot of times the services that artists provide to the world, to businesses, you know, um, the services they provide and, and charge for are often undervalued. Part of understanding how to run a business is understanding how to value your work and starting to be okay with saying no. And I think a lot of 
folks who do charge for their creative work struggle with that and and end up doing projects they don't want to and kind of feeling resentful for them, which is really not why any of us, you know, do what we do. We do what we do because we want to feel proud of our accomplishments and we want to feel like they're sustaining ourselves and, you know, the people we create them for. And and part of that's just kind of getting the numbers right, which isn't super exciting to talk about or super, you know, stimulating, but it's part of the equation to at the end of the day feeling good about what you've done and not feeling burned out and feeling ready to take on the next thing. Yeah, I think that's well put. And now may I ask you a little bit about of the sea? Yes. <laughs> that was a that was a, a very important digression. So please know that I, I'm happy we went that way. But let's talk a little bit about of the sea. Of the Sea came about really because I was doing TrimTab Media. Um, I was at a conference speaking about storytelling for, for progressive companies. Uh, it was a conference called the Sustainable Enterprise Conference. I had been giving a, given a speaking slot there and I was kind of doing my spiel. I was talking about why it's great for companies who are doing good in the world to tell their stories. It helps inspire their customers, connect them with like-minded folks, and it inspires other businesses to start looking at their their practices and how to make them more sustainable. And so after that talk, um, this woman came up to me. Her name was um, Melissa Mahoney. And she came up and um, she said, hey, I have this great idea for the nonprofit I'm working with, um, we want to tell the stories of fishermen and kind of put a face to the work of the people who are doing this kind of work. And she told me, you know, a lot of times fishermen are seen as, you know, people who don't care about the environment, people who are, you know, taking from the ocean and polluting and, and it's just not true. And I didn't know much about this. And, and my perspective was actually, I, I was still mostly vegetarian and vegan at the time. And I, I didn't eat much meat. I definitely didn't eat much fish because I knew there was complicated stuff around seafood that I didn't really understand. And I hadn't even gone there with sustainable table because it felt like this whole other topic. And I had, I remember saying that in Q and A's that, that I'd attend after screenings for sustainable table, people would ask, Hey, why didn't you cover seafood? And I'd say, well, it's a whole other film and we just didn't have the time. So anyway, it was kind of like this glimmer of, oh, this is that other film. And so she and I got to talking and we kind of put together a concept and applied to some funding and got a small grant. And we went out and we shot an interview. And the first interview we did was Jim Ponce in Fort Bragg. He's a um, black cod fisherman. He fishes out of Noyo Harbor. It was a great interview. And we spent a day with him on his boat. And we put together a pitch reel from that and we did a Kickstarter campaign and we raised some more money to continue telling this story. And it went from this idea of making a bunch of short profile videos about fishermen to kind of combining those into a feature documentary that really represented what it's like to be a fisherman in California today and some of the issues when it comes to ocean sustainability that they face and that we face as people who eat seafood or don't eat seafood. So anyway, we we went on to profile five different fisheries and the fishermen uh, who fish in them uh, along the coast of California from Fort Bragg down to Monterey Bay. So we we profiled Jim, a black cod fisherman, a salmon fisherwoman, a Dungeness crab fisherman, a squid fisherman, an urchin diving family in Fort Bragg as well. And um, we wove those stories together along with some expert interviews into really another kind of survey of what it means to eat seafood and some of the people who are doing that well, and some of the issues that we have to be thinking about when we go to, you know, order seafood in a restaurant or buy it at the grocery store and understanding how our buying habits affect the world around us. 
And so it 10 years after making Sustainable Table became kind of my next, you know, try at at raising awareness around our food in a more focused way around seafood. Yeah, it's a good movie. Uh, and, and once again, you learn a lot. It was perfect to bring back to Sonar to our um, class at Mendocino High School. I, here's one I watched just the other night. I thought I've got to catch up on some more Misha films. So I watched um, Women's March, um, which is about the January 21, 2017, while the women's marches around the country. I went to the one in Oakland, which you actually had a fair amount of footage of, which was way cool. Somewhere between four and five million people marched that day. And you had footage from Washington, D.C., Oakland, San Francisco, Santa Rosa. That's a, a, a nice little a 30 minutes, uh, a lot of interviews with a variety of people. Talk about Women's March. This film, Women's March, really came out of a desire to do something as the election in 2016 was happening and I was feeling fairly powerless. You know, I had cast my vote and it didn't go in the way I wanted it to. And a lot of other people felt that way. And a lot of people felt scared and and worried that their rights were going to be and were <laughs> infringed upon by this new you know president and um i remember shortly after the election i was on a run and i was thinking about you know how could we possibly participate and i knew that this these women's marches were about to happen in january and i i knew at, at the least i'd go and, and march along with my wife in in san francisco or in sonoma county where, where we're living and then i just something clicked and i was like oh we can do more than that like we have the tools to do more than that. We can tell this story and we can represent the stories of many people marching. And so at first we just we thought, oh, well, let's just go make a film about the San Francisco Women's March. And, you know, maybe we'll put out the five minute video and, you know, show the breadth of of the march and who was there and what happened as a result. And then um, we met as a team to talk about this. And the idea just started to snowball as as they do when you're working on something with other creative folks. And uh, we decided to, well, let's represent this across the country. And we know filmmakers in almost every major city. Let's call them up and see if they're up for it. So um, we quickly put together uh, the concept for this. We ran a crowdfunding campaign and raised some money. I think we actually seed funded just the production part, but we raised money to edit the film. And the goal was to get this out there as quickly as possible because things were happening left and right. And it felt like we all needed to organize around this common idea and American ideal of standing up for our rights and standing up for our freedom. And so that's what this was. It was about representing the concerns that many people around the country who marched in the women's marches of 2017 and making sure that those stories were represented alongside one another in a film that could be used by activists, that could be used by women's rights groups, uh, that could be used by communities across the country to further their work as activists. So that's what we did. Um, we filmed that in January. And I think by April, we had released it at a film festival. And it was the fastest production of a complex film that I'd done. And it was incredibly empowering to have something to do at that time where a lot of people really just felt helpless. Yeah, it's a it's a real nice, it's about a half hour, 35 minutes, something like that. And um, it's very representative. You, it's very diverse that you have all kinds of people represented and uh, all kinds of women. I enjoyed it. And my wife enjoyed it too. So you had a solidarity vote <laughs> from her. 
which was really neat to see. I wanted to ask you too about, I think this is in a post-production. I think this is one of the things you're working on a lot is um, doing documentaries about specific areas and what, what's going that they're going through environmentally. A documentary about changing landscape of Alaska's coasts. Are you guys, is it out yet or... Um... Tell us a little bit about that one. It's not. It, it's a. Uh, it's a Yupik um, term, and it's it's pronounced Shlavit Kamiktuk, and I and I'm definitely not doing that justice. But it translates to "Our world is changing." I partnered with a, a journalist from Finland and a documentary filmmaker from a small village in Alaska who is Yupik to tell the story of a small village in in uh, coastal Alaska that is really on the front lines of sea level rise and um, some of the uh, challenges that their village is facing, but also some of the ways that their community is coming together and really uh, appreciating their own cultural identity in new ways. And so we kind of center the story around this archaeological dig that was unearthed as the ocean was eroding away at the coastline. The old village started to be seen, uh, you know, kind of being unearthed as the ocean was lapping at the shore and these storms were coming in. And a lot of the village elders got together and decided, hey, you know, we we usually leave these sites at rest. It's not considered appropriate in Yupik culture to dig up your ancestors. But um, at the same time, uh, they were really experiencing this the challenges of losing touch with their culture when it came to younger generations um, not being in touch with uh, their ancestors. So they decided to collaborate with this team of archaeologists from um, from Scotland and all over the place and uh, and and got some grant funding and invited them to come into the village and mine these artifacts from the beach as it was eroding and preserve them so that they could those elders could tell the stories of their ancestors to the next generations so at the same time the ocean is kind of eroding this village away and they're dealing with all these other impacts of climate change tundra melting houses sinking uh, migration patterns of, you know, subsistence um, species that they hunt, uh, caribou, berries that they gather on the tundra, all these different things happening at the same time that they're trying to reconnect with the the place that make and the, and the people that make them who they are. And so we wanted to kind of weave together all of these themes um, to show the impact that climate change is having today. You know, climate change is kind of thought of and really until the last few years is this giant thing that we can't really measure and we can't really understand. And it's hard to relate to, you know, beyond that image of the polar bear. And I think that's shifted a lot since we even started making this film in 2018. Like we see these climate impact stories all around us in the media today, finally. But at the time we started making the film, it didn't feel like in the mainstream uh, very much at all. Um, but I think that one of the other important things about this film is this is about the people who are most collect connected to the land. Indigenous people in all corners of the world um, often have the most direct connection to the land. They've lived with land for uh, for generations and generations. They've had a much more reciprocal relationship with the land than Europeans um, and people of European descent have had. And so it's also this kind of strange thing where climate change is impacting a lot of these communities first and most 
because they live in connection with the land, yet they're often the people that have the least impact on the land. And so it kind of wrestles with all these different themes of cultural identity, climate change happening now, and climate justice. Um, like really, how, how should this be dealt with as the people who are most connected with the land are being affected by climate change first? We're still very much working on the film. We have a, a fine cut of the film. We're continuing to shape it in the edit room, and we're hoping to be finished with it by the end of the year and and be able to um, to send it to film festivals and out into the world. I'm not uh, teaching sonar anymore. I'm retired, but I I would gladly recommend that to. Perhaps you can make a Mendo junket and uh, show that to the class. That would be perfect for the sonar class. Oh, we'd love to, and we'll, we'll definitely submit it to the Mendocino Film Festival also. And Oh, I great. Hope that, uh, yeah, I hope that we have some local screenings. Yeah, just so you know, I'm on the board of directors for the MFF, and I will oh, gladly, uh, I, I will throw some blocks for you on that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Lovely. That's no, it sounds good. We're, we're actually, we're debating on whether to send out our current cut to some festivals just to give them a taste and say, hey, this is almost done. It's not quite yet, but it's yeah. almost done. So yeah, please ready. do that for Mendo Film Festival. That'll be great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I want to, before we uh, close, I want to ask you about uh, the work you're doing on your dad, um, Michael Hedges, the Wyndham Hill um, musician. Uh, you've made, you're making a film called Oracle, the life and music of Michael Hedges. I know he sadly died in a car crash when you were young. You were, I think, in middle school, actually, something like yeah. that. Looks like a labor of love to me. Um, uh, talk to us about how you're putting this film together. Yeah. Well, we're, we're hoping to make it more than a labor of love. You know, in, I think all of my films have been a labor of love in that here's the story. We care about it. We think it's important. We want to get it out to the world. And, you know, often it comes with without pay and with, without all the resources that we want to make a film. And that's a common thing for many documentary filmmakers. I've always known that at some point I'd probably want to make a film related to my dad and my dad's work. He was a musician. He's considered a pioneer of the acoustic guitar in many, in many ways. And a lot of, you know, fans were left behind as well as family members, you know, when he passed away. Um, and it's been about 20, almost 25 years since he died. And there hasn't been a film made about him. And there have been a couple of attempts or he's been included in, the, in a few, but nothing that has really done his story justice in the way that we as family members wanted. And, and I think that his fans um, want as well. About five years ago, um, his brother, uh, Brendan Hedges and I, um, Brendan's a, film, uh, a filmmaker as well. We've collaborated on some projects. I've edited some of his films. He's done some producing work on some of TrimTab's work. And uh, we decided, hey, it's it's time. We need to start talking about this. So actually, I think about 10 years ago, we started talking about it. Five years ago, we started getting more serious about it. And long story short, we're just about finished with a shooting script for the film. And yeah, we're going to be producing a feature film about a, a biopic, essentially, about uh, my dad's life in music and um, the journey that he went on from, you know, being a, a kid in Oklahoma to to being on stage at Carnegie Hall, you know, in his in his 30s and bring audiences on the journey of his life and what led him to uh, to be the musician that he was. So we're super excited about that. Honestly, it will be the most powerful film I've worked on personally. And it's a little bit divergent from the themes of my other work, but it's equally as important to me and um, much more intimate process than than the other films I've worked on. So I'm really relishing the time I have to work on the project and uh, really trying to go all in on that. Um, so this fall, 
we'll be producing a, a crowdfunding campaign to raise some critical funding for the production of the film. And we'll also be pitching it to uh, the various streaming companies and distribution partners to really try to get the backing we need to do this project um, well and with the team it deserves. Yeah, well, I sure hope that's successful. And um, that also sounds like it would be a great one for the Mendocino Film Festival. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When, when it's finished, we'll we'll absolutely submit it. <laughs> yeah. Now, before we go, I, I I wanted to just check with you. I know with, regarding environmental stuff, I've also done a lot of work with um, Al Gore's Climate Reality Project as a presenter and at, at various uh, conferences and stuff. I see that you're involved with Fire Drill Fridays, uh, where Jane Fonda and other activists uh, uh, work for Greenpeace to make people aware of climate change. I, I went on your site and I noticed there was a series of them. Talk to us about uh, Fire Drill Fridays. Yeah. Have you met Jane, actually? I have, yes. Um, only virtually, but we're actually planning uh, in person this fall to do a, an event with them. So, yeah. So, you know, COVID, like for, for everyone, in 2020, COVID really threw my business trim tab for a loop. Um, you know, most of our businesses is remote you know we do a lot of our editing project projects remotely but production is very much an in-person thing you know you show up with a crew you do interviews you film footage and uh in march and april 2020 every single job that we had was canceled because no one knew it was going to happen and no one definitely no one wanted the um liability of bringing people together for a film shoot and then having everyone get COVID, especially when it was, you know, scary in the beginning. So we kind of went back to the drawing board when it came to what we could offer our clients. And we had done live streaming before for events. We'd done event recording, you know, with a bunch of cameras and uh, we'd stream that out to YouTube so that our clients could reach a, a remote or a virtual audience. We kind of figured out how to help our clients produce virtual events on Zoom, on live streaming, on YouTube. And we actually built a virtual event studio and uh, started working with a lot of our existing clients and some new ones on uh, those projects. So Greenpeace was one of those. I had long regarded them as kind of a, a dream client. Um, I thought they were doing good work in, in the kind of environmental activism world and certainly looked up to them. And they reached out and they needed support with this event that they had been doing in person with Jane Fonda, where they brought people together in different cities around the country to rally around climate action and um, showcase some of the work activists were doing bring awareness to injustices that were happening. And so they need, basically they needed a technical partner to help them pull this thing off virtually. So um, it's been a great relationship and we've worked with them since fall 2020 to produce this show at first weekly. And then for the last, uh, over this last year, it's been monthly. And uh, Jane is a great host um, in her eighties. She is so sharp and so connected to environmental causes and values. And uh, she brings really some of the leading minds and 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 hearts and bodies who are out there putting their bodies on the line um, when it comes to climate action. Um, she brings them together to talk about the issues and rally people around solutions and action. So um, yeah, I feel super blessed to be a part of that and um, to continue to work with them. And I think later this fall, we'll be doing some in-person uh, events with them too. Could I, I, have, I have one thing I'd like to touch on if I could, Doug, uh, with Misha. Um, cause you've been in it in the, uh, documentarian field long enough to have seen the way that the, uh, digital revolution has affected documentary filmmaking that people who before could not afford the equipment to be able to do 
filmmaking of an informative way like you do. How has it affected your work and has it made you more able to be able to produce more work? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I would say yes and no. I mean, it is incredibly powerful that you can, if you have one of these, it's, it's a phone in yeah. any case, but if you have one of these, you can shoot 4K video with pretty decent audio. And, uh, and if you have a laptop, you have a webcam. YouTube, anyone can upload anything. Uh, I mean, it, unless you're in a country that prohibits that, but there are video platforms you can upload to that you can get your message out to anyone with an internet connection. That's incredibly powerful and democratizing media. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that everyone will see the video you put up on YouTube, though. It means you have to have a good story. It means you have to tell it well. And it means you have to be able to launch that into the world in a successful way. So while the tools are available to, um, I'm not going to say anyone because you do need money to have, you know, a, a camera and a computer that can edit and, but, um, they're much more available than they ever have been before. But I think the challenge is that, um, in the modern media landscape with social media in particular, there's so much out there and the landscape is so cluttered that, um, you're kind of in competition with everything else. So while the tools are more yeah. available, there's also so much more that's out there. Um, which is great because uh, anyone with a story to tell can tell it, um, but you're also vying for the attention of folks. So that's where this kind of viral sensation has, mm -hmm. has come about, right? Where if you have a good story and it's seen by just the right combination of people at the right time and the, and the Facebook algorithm is working in your favor, yeah, you could have a video filmed on your iPhone be seen by millions or even billions of people. And we've seen that we see that you know almost every day something's kind of trending but it also means that incredibly talented people with great stories to tell um just sometimes aren't hitting those marks and something isn't considered mm -hmm. viral or shareable and it doesn't mean it's any less of um important of a message often they're actually the more important messages that get lost in the fray it's an interesting time it's great if you're starting out because you can get the tools you need, but it's definitely not a substitute for learning the craft of storytelling and learning some of the yeah. strategy behind getting your story out there in the world. And that is, there are definitely some paths that are proven, but um, I wouldn't say they're well-traveled. There's only so many opportunities to get your film on the Netflix or HBO or trending uh, on YouTube or a staff pick by Vimeo. Um, and it, I think consistency is really the only kind of, uh, kind of the only wisdom I can offer up is, you know, keep doing what you're doing and keep practicing your craft. And, um, and hopefully you will, your, your film will be seen by the audience that you want it to be. Um, but it's not as clear cut as just make something and put it out there, like do that, but keep doing that. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's a good insight about uh, any success in any field, right? Actually, so just persistence, yeah, persistence is yeah. important. <laughs> well, thanks for bringing that in, Ken. That's great. So, otherwise, I just want to say thank you, Misha. It's great to have you on Snap Sessions. It's great to see the work you're doing. Uh, Mendocino couldn't be prouder. So, keep up the good work, Misha Hedges. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for having me. And, um, yeah, look forward to hearing it. Thanks to our artist activist of the show, filmmaker and environmental activist, Misha Hedges. Our production team includes tech meister, Marshall Brown, jack of all trades, Ken Krause, 
writer interviewer Doug Nunn, and our logo designer Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes.